Amen. Well, Happy New Year to everybody. It's great to see you all here. Uh, beginning of a new year, it's uh, the beginning of a new decade, and it's uh, exciting to see what the Lord has for us individually and for our families and for us as a church um, as we head into this new year together. thought it'd be appropriate this morning if we just open this new year together as a church with a word of prayer. So let's look to the Lord and go before the throne of grace. There's an old song called Abide With Me. And there's a great verse in that song that says this, Change and decay, and all around I see, O thou who changest not, abide with me. Well, Father, we thank you that in changing times we can come to the unchanging one. The times change, the years change, the seasons change, we change, but you never change. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, you tell us in your word that you inhabit eternity, that you dwell in unapproachable light. Father, we thank you that you're our God. We thank you that we have the privilege to know you, and we have the privilege to live for you and to serve you. Father, as we look back to, to 2019, I know for many it was a difficult year. Maybe they lost a loved one or suffered a serious health setback or maybe lost a job, and maybe the effects of that are still lingering over into 2020. Maybe someone here this morning is uh, very discouraged and maybe depressed and even in despair. And Father, I pray for your comforting hand, your encouraging hand, your healing hand to be upon all this morning who, who need your touch in their lives. Father, we, we thank you, though, for your faithfulness to us in, 20, in 2019, to our families, to our church. We thank you for this new building that you've helped us to construct. And we pray, Father, it will be used to the glory of God in this year and many years to come to see people come to faith in Christ and lives to be transformed. So, Father, we look to you now at the threshold of a new year. We ask that you'd propel us into the new year, that you'd energize us by your Spirit. Uh, keep us Christ-centered. And, Father, we thank you that you're already out ahead of us in 2020. In your providence, you're already out there ruling and overruling in the circumstances of life to bring things about in such a way that we can glorify you. So, Father, help us in this coming year to desire your will, to delight to do your will, and to do it as we follow you, our great God and our great Savior. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to thank Justin Kinsley, our, our student ministries pastor, for speaking last week. He did a great job, and it was exciting to see our uh, student ministry lead our service last week. Uh, Cheryl and I were, were on the road, and we, were, uh, we watched the service online. And uh, Cheryl made the comment that if you uh, are a parent here with a student um, in our youth group and you saw um, Addie Zander up here leading in worship and uh, heard the message that Justin gave, you have to feel good about your, your student being under their leadership and under their teaching and care. So uh, your student is, is in capable and caring hands uh, here at Faith Bible Church. I wanted to mention this is the first Sunday of the month, and so we will celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of this service. So I always like to mention that so we can be preparing our hearts to celebrate the supper together. I also wanted to just mention a little bit about our preaching schedule for this coming year. Uh, Lord willing, we'll begin 2 Peter next week. We finished 1 Peter uh, last year in about August did a few topical studies, and so uh, that'll be our next book study that we'll begin. I thought that'd be a great way to just continue our study of 1 Peter. And then I plan in the fall, probably in late August, to begin a study of the book of Daniel together. So I'm not sure what we'll do between those two, but those are kind of the, the bookends for this coming year for our book studies. 
uh, for this coming year. But this morning, I want to bring a a one-time message as we look ahead, obviously, to uh, this coming year that's before us. Uh, Last week, I I read a book by, a new book by Randy Alcorn. It's just, just out, I think, recently. And it's called Giving is the Good Life. And I enjoyed the book a great deal. I mean, it challenged me and convicted me like all good books do, but I enjoyed it. I mean, it was very inspiring. And I mean, it stimulated a lot of thinking in my own heart and mind about myself and about our church. And uh, since this subject has kind of been stirring in my own heart, um, I thought I would share it with you all because I like to, to speak about things that God is stirring in my life and uh, things that I'm passionate about. So I want to begin the new year together thinking about and answering the question, what is the good life? When everybody wants to live the good life, what is the good life? If we ask here this morning, we might get a lot of different answers. And certainly if we went out into the world, we would get all kinds of answers about what the good life really is. So what will it look like for you and for me and for our church uh, to live the good life in 2020? Well, to answer that question, I want to turn to Acts chapter 20. If you have your Bible and uh, will turn there with me to the 20th chapter of Acts, I want to bring a message I've titled Happy New Year. As you can see in your outline, the emphasis there being on the word happy. Let me read to Acts 20, uh, verses 32 to 35. This is uh, the Apostle Paul speaking here to the elders at Ephesus. He's leaving and going away. This is kind of his farewell address to them. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, so reads uh, God's inspired and errant word. There was a Sunday school class at a church, and the teacher wanted the children to memorize a verse, and the verse was Acts chapter 20, verse 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And so uh, one little boy raised his hand, and he said, well, I already know that verse. I've already memorized that. And she said, well, what is it? And he said, well, it's, it is more blessed to give than to receive. She said, well, how do you know that verse so well? He said, well, that's actually my dad's life verse. She said, really, that's amazing. She said, why is that your dad's life verse? She said, well, my dad is a UFC fighter. Some of you will get that in a minute. A UFC fighter is more blessed to give than to receive. Anyway, I didn't get much better response at 930. Some of you will catch that in just a minute. But we'd all do well to learn and to live this verse, um, to give ourselves to giving, to having a giving, a generous life. Because we're going to see this morning, and we see it really throughout Scripture, that giving is the good life. Generosity is the gateway to the blessed life. And as we head into the new year of 2020, everybody wants to be happy. I mean, everybody wants to have a good life. And the Bible tells us that the good life is inseparable uh, from generosity. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Jesus says, it's more blessed to give uh, than to receive. So God wants you and he wants me to have a blessed new year to have a happy new year. And there's more happiness found in giving than in receiving. Happiness is found in giving, not receiving, and sharing, not so much in getting. Uh, Winston Churchill said this years ago, he said, you make a living by what you get, you make a life by what you give. That's a good statement. 
Here's a really good statement by Calvin Coolidge, President Coolidge. He said this, No person was ever honored for what he received. Honor is the reward for what he gave. Have you ever seen a big ceremony where they had a great ceremony for someone and gave them an award for what they received in life? Never happens, right? What is it always? It's always about what someone has given of their time, of their treasure, um, of their talents. So what I want to do this morning is just develop a very simple thought for each one of us to carry forward into the new year to, make, uh, to, to really mark our lives. And that is to have a happy new year, we need to cultivate um, a generous heart, a generous spirit. Now let me just say up front, Faith Bible Church has been a generous church all the years my wife and I have been here. This is a generous church, and we're deeply, deeply grateful uh, for that. And I, I pray and I hope that my wife and I are generous people. But what I will say from my own experience, this is something that constantly I need to be called up higher in in my own life. No matter how much I think about being generous, it's something we all need to re-examine uh, periodically in our lives. And so what I want to do this morning is develop this thought, look to have a happy new year. You and I need to cultivate a generous heart and a generous spirit. Now, I want to put this text in its context briefly. It's a simple context of the Apostle Paul. It's the end of his third missionary journey. He's there with the Ephesian elders at the city of Miletus. He's heading for Jerusalem, and he's giving them kind of some final words. It's kind of Paul's farewell address or appeal to the Ephesian elders. And it's interesting, the last thing he says to the Ephesian elders is, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's his final word uh, to those leaders there. Because in the next chapter, a couple verses later, Paul uh, sails away. Now, I want to develop three simple points this morning. The basis for our generosity, the bent that you and I should have toward generosity, and then the blessing that God will give to us if we are generous people. So let's start with the basis of our generosity or giving. The basis of our generosity is the teaching and life of Jesus. I mean, Jesus leads the way in generosity. Acts 20, 35, the Lord Jesus said, it's more blessed to give uh, than to receive. Now, what's interesting is you'll see in most Bibles, in verse 35, it's in red letters. Jesus said this, but you won't go back anywhere in the Gospels and find this statement of Jesus. In fact, this is the only direct quote from the life of Jesus that's outside the Gospels. Isn't that interesting? The only direct quote Outside the Gospels from Jesus is a quote about being generous. So you say, well, how do we know Jesus said this? Well, there's a lot of things Jesus said that aren't written in the Gospels that the apostles knew. So certainly Paul heard this through oral tradition from uh, the apostles that Jesus at one time had made this statement. And it's easy to imagine Jesus saying this because the basis of our giving in life really um, is his giving. We see it throughout his life. We see it in the birth of Jesus. We just finished celebrating Christmas where uh, the invisible God became visible. Uh, the Ancient of Days was born in time. And Jesus gave up his place in heaven to come down here and take on human flesh and rub shoulders with human sinners. And again, we've just celebrated Christmas of the coming of Jesus into the earth to die for us. And at Christmas, we celebrate that God gave his best. In fact, someone put it like this, Christmas is heaven's best for earth's worst. God gave his best uh, for our worst to send Jesus to be our Savior. Uh, we see it in the life of Jesus. Um, throughout his life, Jesus was a sacrificing giver who poured out his life. 
His entire life was marked by sacrifice and giving. Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give His life as a ransom for many. Well, we see it in the death of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is a great verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who although He was rich, for your sakes became poor, that through His poverty you might be made rich. Jesus impoverished Himself so that you and I could be rich. Now, I don't think in that verse it's talking about money. Jesus was rich, and when He came and hung on the cross, He became poor. That is, He was impoverished, and He bankrupted Himself as He took the weight of the sin upon Himself. And through His poverty, and His taking our sin upon Himself, then He is free to save us and to make us rich and to lavish upon us all the spiritual blessings uh, that we have through Him. By the way, that is the heartbeat of the gospel. It's the self-giving of God. It's the impoverishing and bankruptcy of Jesus as He hung there on the cross, taking your sin and my sin. And this would be a great place for me just to pause and say, if you've never taken Christ to be your Savior, that's the best thing you can do for 2020 and for eternity, is to receive this payment that Jesus Christ made for you. He was bankrupt on the cross for you, taking all your sin. So that your sins can be washed away and you can be made rich in Him as you receive the gift of His righteousness. And you can do it right now, right where you sit, as you trust in Him and take Him and receive that payment He made on your own behalf. So that's the heartbeat of the gospel. Uh, Jesus is not stingy. Um, He models extravagant generosity. And His generosity then becomes the basis for our generosity. And once you get a taste of His generosity and His grace, you should want to be generous in your life. I like the story about a mother who was preparing pancakes for her son Kevin and his younger brother Ryan. And the boys began to argue over who's going to get the first pancake. So the mother saw a great opportunity to teach these boys a lesson. So she said, if Jesus was sitting here, what do you think He would say? She said, I think He'd say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. Well, Kevin's eyes got really big, and then he turned to his younger brother, Ryan, and said, Ryan, you be Jesus. (laughs) Pretty smart kid, right? As I thought about that, why don't you be Jesus this year? Why don't I be Jesus? Why don't we be like him in his grace and his generosity that he's lavished upon us? So that's the basis of our giving. Again, we could go and say a lot more about that, but it's just, it's the generosity of our Savior. Now, the next thing we see here is what I call the bent of giving, and that is you and I should have a bent as believers toward giving rather than receiving. In other words, we need to have a bent or a predisposition to be generous people. Um, This ought to be our, our default setting, if you will. The default mode for us as believers should be a generous heart. We ought to stand ready to give. We should live in the continuous desire to meet the needs of others with a lot of the things we have that we don't need. And just simply put, I mean, it, I can't put it any clearer than this, it's better. A giving is better is what this passage is telling us. Look, money is a wonderful thing, and money can do a lot of things. Money's not bad. It's necessary. But money can't do the most important things in life. A lot of you probably read different renditions of this statement before, but There's a lot of them out there, but I like this one. Money can buy medicine, but not health. Money can buy a house, but not a home. 
Money can buy companionship, but not friends. Money can buy entertainment, but not happiness. Money can buy food, but not an appetite. Money can buy a bed, but not sleep. Money can buy a crucifix, but not a savior. Look, money is important, but it's not most important. And our bent as believers is to be generous. And sometimes what we'll find is when we're generous, sometimes when you're generous, what happens? People take advantage of you. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he was so generous that he and his wife sometimes were taken advantage of by others. In fact, one time there was a transient woman. Um, allegedly, she was a runaway nun, although they found out later that wasn't true. But she came to their home, and Martin Luther and his wife Catherine, uh, they fed and housed this woman and took care of her for some period of time, only to discover later that she'd lied to them and she'd actually stolen from them. And some people, you know, kind of mocked Martin Luther for his generosity, and he said that he believed no one could ever become poor by practicing charity. And then he said this, I love this, that God divided our hands into fingers so that money would slip through. That's a beautiful statement, great thought. God divided our hands into fingers so that money would slip through. That should be our attitude, and I pray that a lot of it is slipping through our fingers. And you say, well, well what should we give to? What should be the, the focus of our, of our generosity? Well, we should give to people who are in need. We should give to those who are, who are less privileged than us. And we should give maybe to uh, some, some veterans organizations that support wounded veterans. Um, Compassion International is a great organization to support. Um, we can support uh, missionaries, and we can fund a Bible translation. A lot of things we can give to. I do believe from Scripture, though, that the priority of our giving should be the local church. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades won't prevail against it. I mean, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, Paul says to, to gather together your money on the first day of the week and to bring it and to give it, and the place it was given was in the local church. So our priority as in giving should be financing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or to seek first the kingdom of God. The greatest need for people in this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now it's good to help people get clean water and clean food and to help those or, or to get food uh, to help those in need. And you and I should do that because if people don't live, they can't hear the gospel. And if their health is deteriorated so poorly, uh, they may not be able to even understand or even to, to grasp the truth of the gospel. So people have to live to hear the gospel. And so the idea of, of helping those in need and advancing the gospel, these aren't competing ideas. These are complementary things that you and I should care about because God cares about his creatures and you and I should as well. But I think our priority in giving in the New Testament should be to the local church and to the advancement of the gospel uh, from that place as a beacon. So that's the priority of giving. Let me talk just for a minute about the perspective of our giving. Go over to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 17. Uh, Paul says this, or he's writing to Timothy. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, if you have a lot of money, it's easy to get prideful and arrogant about that, to get bloated up about the money you have, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. You know, riches are uncertain. They'll, they'll certainly fail us someday when we die. But on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. I love that last statement. God gives us the things of this life to enjoy. You could literally translate that to make us happy. God is happy when he sees us enjoy some of the good that he's given to us. 
But he's telling those who are rich to share. Notice verse 18, to instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready uh, to share. Now, one of the questions that comes up here, he says, instruct those who are rich. Now, some of us here today, we might even admit and we'd say, you know what, I, I really, I, I'm a rich person. Probably most of us wouldn't say that. We always compare ourselves with people. And if you'll notice, we always compare up. We never compare down. I was looking at people that have more as we compare ourselves. But I can say almost certainly that everybody here this morning, if you go look worldwide, we're wealthy people. The book I mentioned earlier by Randy Alcorn, uh, Giving is the Good Life, he has some, some amazing thoughts and statistics here, and I won't bore you with too many of them, but this one really grabbed me. He said, in 2017, a family of four in the United States with an annual income of $24,600 was, at the, was uh, at the U.S. federal poverty level. Yet when I entered that amount at globalrichlist.com, uh, it indicated this income is in the top 2% of people worldwide. Now think about that. A family of four. $24,600, you're in the top 2% of the world, of worldwide. And so that person is actually a wealthy person. We would say in our country, they're at the poverty level. The average income in China now is $15,000. Then he, then he goes on and says this, in 2018, the median household income in the United States was 62000 which by the way, this year it's raised to 66000 which was one of the, the larger increases in a lot of years. We, we need to be thankful for that. But he said, that amount lands you not just in the top 1% of the world's wealthy, but inside the top one-fifth of 1%. So in America, if you make $65,000 a year, family of four, you're in the top one-fifth of 1% of the people in the world. We hear a lot in our culture today about the one percenters. Well, a lot of us here, and probably most of us here, are, are more than one percenters when you look at our world globally. And one of the things that ought to cause all of us to do is just pause with our families and give thanks to God for what he's given to us. Uh, Psalm 16, there's a great verse there that says, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. For most of us here, when it comes to money, when you look at the world, the global scene, the lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. And to whom much is given, the Bible says, much is required. Now look, the Bible never instructs rich people to become poor people. It doesn't say if you're rich, you need to be poor. But it instructs the rich to counterbalance their wealth with generosity. And so you and I need to think about how we can be generous in 2020 and use our money to do good. So the basis of our giving is the giving of Jesus. Uh, the bent of our giving is you and I should have a default setting as believers in Christ. We ought to have a predisposition uh, to be giving uh, to the Lord's work. But let's talk finally here about the blessing of giving. The Bible never belittles or denigrates money. Uh, we all need money. It's necessary. Uh, the Bible tells us, though, how to use it wisely and how to have money be our servant or our slave and not to be our master. Now, back in Acts 25, when Paul says there that Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive, the point is not that someone who is in need and receives a gift is less than the person who gives it to them. You, you could kind of get that from that. You know, it's a lot better to be the giver than to be the receiver, that it's kind of putting down a person who's on the receiving end um, of a gift. It's not saying the person who gives is better than the person who receives. 
Um, I. Howard Marshall, who's a well-known uh, scholar, New Testament scholar, he says this. He says, the point of Acts 20.35 is that it's better for a person who can give to help others, ra- who can to help others rather than to amass further wealth for himself. So it's not saying the giver is better than the receiver. It's saying that if you have a, a, a decent amount of money, it's better for you to give than to just keep receiving and just amassing and hoarding up more and more wealth for yourself. That's what the verse is saying. But God promises joy and blessing and happiness to us if we are generous. It's the good life. And God blesses us when we're givers and when we're generous in at least three ways. One of the ways is economically. Um, We see this often in the Old Testament. Let me go back and read a, a few verses from Proverbs. Um, These are probably familiar to most of you. You can turn to these with me or just uh, listen as I read them. Uh, The first one's Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Again, you might want to write these down and go look them up on your own. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first of your produce. Get God the best. So your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will overflow with wine. God's saying, look, if you give, I'm going to give back to you. Proverbs 11, verse 24 and verse 25. There is one who scatters, yet increases all the more. There's one who withholds what is justly due, but it results in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. It's pretty obvious what he's saying there. Um, Proverbs 22 and uh, verse 9. Proverbs 22, verse 9. He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. If you help those in need... God's saying, look, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless you. Over in uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said this. And again, some of you might say, well, those other verses are just Old Testament. Well, this is what Jesus said um, about giving. This is a radical statement that that Jesus gives here in uh, Luke 6, 38. Give, and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap. For by the standard of measure, it will be measured, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Now, what Jesus is doing here, he's taking a picture of someone in that day counting out grain to sell it. And here's how one scholar describes that process. He says, the measuring of of corn was a process that was carried out according to an established pattern. The seller would crouch on the ground with the measure between his legs. First of all, he'd fill the measure three-quarters full and give it a good shake and a rotary motion to make sure the grain all settled down. Then he'd fill the measure to the top and give it another shake. Then he would press the corn together strongly with both of his hands. Finally, he would heap it into a cone on top, tapping it carefully to press the grains together. From time to time, he would bore a little hole in the cone and pour a few more grains into it until there was literally no more room for a single grain. In this way, the purchaser was guaranteed an absolutely full measure. It could not hold any more. And that's the image Jesus is giving here. He's saying, look, the one who gives will receive. The generous will prosper. God will refresh those who refresh others. Charles Spurgeon said this, God gives by cartloads to those who give by bushels. That's what this passage is saying. Now, I think the number one phrase of 2019 has to be quid pro quo. I mean, I had to hear that at least a thousand times on on TV. And we all know what that means now, that Latin phrase, right? This for that. 
And giving to God is not a quid pro quo. It's not, I give this, God's going to give me that. You know, I give him $100, he's going to give me $1,000. It's not a, a quid pro quo. We're not talking here this morning about the prosperity gospel. So we don't want to abuse this. We don't want to twist this. But it does mean that God in his own way and God in his own time will bless those who are generous. He'll replenish them and he'll refresh them. That's what it means. I'm going to tell a story about uh, myself and something that happened a couple weeks ago. And when you tell a story about yourself and something you gave, you always run the danger of people thinking you're bragging on yourself or whatever. Um, I hope by the time I get to the end of the story, you'll see that God is the one I want to brag on, not myself or my wife. Um, So I pray you'll receive this story in the spirit in which it's intended. Uh, But about two or three weeks ago, I don't remember exactly, but sometime before Christmas, one of our staff members told me and a couple other folks about a a, a lady who'd gone to our church some years ago, was not going now, and this staff member had found out about um, a, a need that this person has, four children, uh, no money for Christmas, a very, very difficult situation. And this staff member was going to give some money to this person to help them. And immediately, you know how that is sometimes, the Lord just tells you, you need to help do this. Now, it's right before Christmas. We're all spending a lot of money that time of year. And you know, it's like you have a lot of money laying around and it's a sacrifice to do it. But I, I knew that this was something we, that we needed to do. Talked with Cheryl about it. And so we, we wanted to give some money. And I called a couple of other people here in our church who are generous that I know. And they gave some as well. And it was a, a, a nice amount of money for these four children and for her for Christmas. So Cheryl and I met her up here at church on, on an afternoon and, and gave, gave her the money. And she was very excited and very grateful and thankful. And we've gotten a report afterwards of how much that blessed her and her family. But I tell that story because that, that afternoon, right after we, we did that, Cheryl and I drove home and we got the mail and opened in the mail. And there was a, a letter there that I didn't recognize. I, you, know, you get a lot of junk mail around Christmas. I was going to throw it in the trash. I thought, well, I'll open it up. Well, I opened it up, opened up this envelope, and in this envelope, totally unexpected, is three times the amount that we had just given, literally an hour earlier. Now, I don't tell that to say, well, go give today, and God's going to have you know, three times that much waiting in the mailbox you know, for you on Monday. Because Cheryl and I give all the time, and that doesn't happen all the time. But in that one case, in this instance, it wasn't even the money that encouraged me as much as the fact that God had to work out to have that arrive on that certain day at that time. And God was out ahead. He was planning all of that and orchestrating it. And what he wanted me and my wife to know is, if you will do what I call you to do, I've got your back. I'm going to replenish you, and I'm going to refresh you, and I'm going to take care of you. Just do what I ask you to do, and you can count on me that I'll be faithful. And I know I'm sure many of you could share stories like that. I actually have other ones. That's just one that just happened recently. And, and we need to look to God and look to him and trust in him that he's going to take care of us if, if we'll do what he asks us to do. So look, the, the first blessing that God promises us is economic. It's, it's in Scripture. Again, we don't want to twist it to some kind of prosperity gospel. But the Bible says what it says, and we need to say that. But the second blessing of, of being generous is emotional. Generosity is the good life. We all know this giving makes you happy, doesn't it? I can tell you a couple weeks ago we did that. It made me supremely happy. And the other folks in our church that that I talked to, it made them happy. They said, hey, thanks for the privilege to do this. Acts 20.35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You know that word blessed? There's the the Greek word makarios, often translated happy. It makes you more happy to give than to receive. 
You'll feel more alive the more that you give away of yourself and what you have. That's the good life. There's a boomerang effect when we give and we're generous. It enriches our life. Back in uh, 1 Timothy 6, a passage we looked at a, a few moments ago, I love this. It starts out in verse 15. It calls God the blessed and sovereign God. And literally, again, you could translate that, the happy God. I don't know if you ever think about that very often, but God's happy. God's a happy God. He's happy and He is sovereign. And we, when you put your money to work for God, God will enrich you spiritually and He'll enrich you emotionally. And He wants to share His happiness with you. In fact, He says here in this verse, He gives us all things richly to enjoy, to make us happy. But then down in verse 20 of 1 Timothy 6, He says, or verse 19, he says, when you give, you store up for yourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, and you take hold of that which is life indeed. So God wants to share his happiness with us and make us happy. And when we give, we are laying hold of that which is true life, the real life, that which is life indeed. Look, giving feels good. I mean, it's fun. It blesses us emotionally. Adrian Rogers said this, he says, don't give until it hurts, give until it feels good. And I like that. It feels good to be generous, and we all know that. And it should excite us to, uh, to participate in the advancement of the gospel. I can often say, I mean, I sit down and write checks every month. I know those of you here who are younger don't do that. That's the archaic old way. I still write out the old checks, you know. I do that, and, you know, I, I write my house payment. I write that. I'm thankful that I have a house. And you write to build an ONG. You're thankful for a warm house and all of that. But I don't get that excited about writing those things. But the part that's the most fun, the best part every month that makes me most happy is to give. And I know that's true. Uh, for you as well if you know the Lord. The good life, the blessed life, comes from a supremely sovereign and a happy God. And he says, I want you to take hold of and lay hold of the good life. I want you to seize that which is life indeed. And he wants us to do that in this coming year. Well, the third way we're blessed when we're generous is we're blessed eternally. Generosity literally is the gift that keeps on giving. Um, giving is investing those of you here, investors, you know about ROI, you know, return on investment. But we all need to think about E-R-O-I, which is eternal return um, on investment. 1 Timothy 6.19 refers to giving as storing up for yourselves a firm foundation for the future. It's going to be waiting for us when we get there. Giving is transferring our riches to another location where they can never be lost. You know, the old saying is you can't take it with you, but someone has said you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rust nor moth destroy, thieves do not break in and steal. And there, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He's not saying you can't save money. He's just saying don't make amassing money here on earth the focus of your life. Look, the Bible never tells us to renounce earthly treasure, but it does tell us to take some of it and relocate it to another place. Not to renounce money. Money's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But don't renounce it, but relocate some of it to another place. Open a bank account in heaven and make regular deposits there, and it'll be waiting for us when we get there. And you know what relocating some of our treasure does? It also relocates our heart. 
Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. A great quote I ran across by A.W. Tozer last week. He said, whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. Isn't that beautiful? Whatever you give to Christ, it's immediately touched by immortality. So use your money to do good. Your generosity will be richly rewarded by God. And someday the books are going to be balanced for all of eternity. We're going to stand before God. The books are going to be balanced for all of eternity. And what we've done with the resources and the treasures God has given us will be known. And you and I will be rewarded or suffer lack of reward for all of eternity based on that. So let's share and let's give and let's look for ways individually. Let's look for ways as a church together to be generous in 2020. And it's going to be exciting to see what God can do in us in our lives and what God can do through us to advance the gospel and and to help people who are in need. Look, we all want to live the good life, but the good life is inseparable from generosity. It's more blessed, it's more happy to give than to receive. And it's the desire of our elders and our pastors here at this church that every one of us here, individually and families and as our church, that we live the good life. We want that for us. That you and your family will grab a hold of that which is true life, which is life indeed. That you'll seize life and that through that you'll be happy. But this is our opportunity now. We only get one chance to live the good life. And God is giving it to us here in this coming year. I want to close with a a quote by Randy Alcorn. This is kind of how he closes that book I've talked about that I read recently. He said this, At death we put the signature on our life's portrait. The paint dries, the portrait's permanently finished. No further renovation is possible. He says, I've revised this book a number of times, but once I die, it'll be too late to go back and revise my life, making different choices about what I do and say, whom I trust and serve, and how much I give. When the final buzzer sounds, no more points can be scored and the outcome is permanent. This is our opportunity right here and now to grab hold of the good life and experience all that God has for us. He says, I can't tell you exactly what it will look like for you to embrace the abundant life, but I can tell you with absolute certainty that committing to live the generous life to God's glory will please and honor Him and infuse you with Christ-centered happiness. Someday, probably in this life, but for sure in the next one, you'll realize it was one of the most important decisions you ever made. Then he says this, I can assure you that once you experience the good life, the abundant life, the generous life, deep inside you, you'll never want to settle for less again. Life will never be the same, nor will you want it to be. When it comes to giving, just start doing it and never stop doing it. Then watch how God transforms you and those you give to. God is the one who promised to give you a rich and satisfying life. So go ahead, ask him to help you by the power of his Holy Spirit to take hold of that which is truly life. Let's do that together. Let's seek together this year to to, uh, cultivate a, a culture here in this church and in our families of generosity and a culture of contentment so we can be used by God, that God can work in us and God can work through us to do the work that he desires to do. Happy New Year. Let's pray together. Well, Father, I come for myself and behalf of myself and my family and all of us here. and We ask, Father, that we'd help us to live the good life this year. The good life that comes from a generous heart. It'll look different for all of us. 
Father, convince us here today that that is the good life. It's what life's all about. Move us by the example of our Savior. But although he was rich, for our sake he became poor. That Jesus came and impoverished himself to make us rich. And now, Father, bless us as we begin this new year by partaking of the Lord's Supper, by remembering that sacrifice that Jesus gave for us. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Thank you, Mark. I want to invite those who are serving the Lord's Supper to come forward and begin doing that. We ask that uh, those who take the Lord's Supper with us be believers in Jesus Christ. You don't need to be a member of Faith Bible Church, uh, but to celebrate, you need to be one who has trusted in Jesus. If you've never taken the Lord's Supper at Faith Bible Church, as these plates pass before you, make sure you take both cups. Uh, There is a wafer cup on the bottom of the juice cup, and I'll tell you when to take each of these elements as we go through the corresponding scriptures. It is our habits that form us and shape us. So how many of you have begun a new workout regimen this week? In addition to making you healthier, you are literally wanting that habit to shape you, uh, to make you into something you currently are not. How many of you began a new diet? You have a list of delicious foods you're now not eating and a list of disappointing foods you have begun eating. You're hoping that these new eating habits will change your approach to food. How many of you have committed this week to a Bible reading plan or some other spiritual discipline, a prayer regiment or scripture memory? Again, the hope is that this habit will improve your spiritual health. Our habits, whether deeply ingrained or in the form of resolutions that we hope might become habits, they have a formative power. And it's not just workout routines and trips to the salad bar, it's the news programs we routinely watch. It's the websites we visit, the products and services we routinely consume, the the constant monitoring of social media. These routines, they shape us. They they wire us and, and build themselves into who we are. Therefore, what we need are counter habits. We need practices that dehabituate us from thinking that the good life is somehow found out there. Enter the Christian worship service. Have you ever considered that your attendance in gathered worship is a formational habit, as something you do that, that shapes you? What, what, when you come in here, what you come in here and do week in and week out, has formative power. It shapes your life. And I'm not just talking about the sermon. I'm not just talking about the information download that you receive from Mark or me or whoever. I'm talking about your encouraging presence. I'm talking about the call to worship, the prayers, the time of greeting, the the singing, the public reading of Scripture, the teaching, the benediction, your giving, as we've talked about this morning. Your habitual engagement with all of that is profoundly formational. Listen to how Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith talks about this. He writes, Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium 
in which God retrains our hearts. What's he simply saying? He's saying loving God takes practice. We leave here and and engage in a host of other habits that make up our week. These habits and practices are, are not always evil or immoral. Some are very moral. Most are probably amoral. But what they are, whatever they are, we need this space to recalibrate, which is why we habitually take the Lord's Supper. What these symbols you're holding, the symbols of the body and blood of Jesus, what they continually proclaim to your heart is a message of profound grace. And since I need grace, lots of grace, this meal serves as a vital reminder about how needy I am. In addition to profound grace, what this habitual practice ingrains in us as a church is a mark of astounding unity. That we all need our sins cleansed and washed away. That none of us stands here in our own righteousness, but only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We make this humbling declaration once at baptism, and then we make it over and over and over again as we take the Lord's Supper together. And this habit of remembering the Lord's death, it isn't done intellectually with more information. It's done by sensation. We see these God-given elements. We, we touch them. We taste them. This practice is like nothing else we do in life. Therefore, it shapes us unlike anything else we do in life. Bow your heads with me. Just think for a moment silently about the formational shape that this supper takes as you practice month in, month out, taking it here together. I'm going to read from Luke's gospel as we take these elements. Luke chapter 22, verse 9. It says that Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks. Let's give thanks for the bread before we take it. Father, thank you for this bread before us. Thank you for what it points us to, your son and his broken body for us. Scripture says he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread together. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Let's give thanks for the cup. Father, we thank you for the obedience of Jesus, whose blood was poured out for us, to cleanse us from all of our sins. We thank you for the cup. Do this, Jesus said, in remembrance of me. Take the cup together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Again, Father, we thank you for the gospel proclamation that we enjoy as we gather around the Lord's table. We thank you for the gospel proclamation that we enjoy as we come in here and sing songs to you, songs of truth and grace. Lord, we thank you for the 
gospel proclamation that has taken place as we've looked at your word and seen what a generous God you are. Lord, thank you for this time and this place and this people. Send us out of here as ambassadors for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me for the benediction. As was stated earlier, if you're a guest with us, maybe you're new to Edmond or you're new to Faith Bible Church, looking for a church home, there are people outside uh, these glass doors here in the Welcome Center that would love to visit with you. Make your way out that direction, uh, and you can get some information about Faith Bible from them. If you came in here this morning with a need or something was impressed upon you throughout the course of our worship service and you want to talk to an elder, uh, the elders will be down front. We'd be happy to spend as much time with you as you need in prayer or just listening to what's on your heart today. The benediction is from Romans chapter 15, again, verse 13. It says, May the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace in believing through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in that power. You're dismissed.